You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. What do you do after a gut-busting political defeat? It's an important question because the American political system seems to deal out a lot of them. I can with complete honesty make the statement that my nomination was brought about by no promise given or implied by me or anybody in my behalf. For one candidate, end result of his race for the presidency was his head in his hands in a New York City washroom. His derby hat tossed aside. The pressure, the bright lights, the handshaking, the microphones, the train rides were all over. The radio stopped listening. The music, the parades faded. And Al Smith, governor of New York, just broke down. Now, 1928 wasn't just any defeat. Smith went from candidate to laughingstock. As his voice, that New York accent, was transmitted all over radio. The voice of the New Yorker didn't resonate with America. His Catholic faith was an issue, and he was forced to respond with a fiery speech, condemning his attackers. He got points for the speech. He lost the election. He even lost his home state of New York. Now, here he was in this washroom saying, what do I do now? That's when a friend of his, Jacob Riskin, one of the wealthiest men in New York, said, Don't worry, Governor. You are going to lead the world's tallest building. And then the second life of Smith began, and he would be the lead spokesperson for the Empire State Building, the tallest building in the world, the pride of New York even today, and a project that would continue to go on, one of the few construction projects continuing during the Great Depression. Now, Smith's defeat was for the presidency. In every presidential election, one guy goes home. But American politics can deal many defeats, right? After all, unlike the other major Western democracies, we use a president-to-Congress system, separate executive and legislative branches sharing power. So we have elections every two years, midterms. Now, for Bill Clinton, a crushing midterm in 1994 meant the resumption of a new partnership. It started with a few phone calls out to a friend that had helped him when he was governor of Arkansas. Then there would be visits to the residents, secret strategy memos. The staffers in the Clinton White House didn't know where Clinton was coming up with some of the ideas he was coming up with. They hadn't briefed him on it. The secret visitor was known only as Charlie. 
for Richard Nixon. 1970s, loss of nine House seats. Really? Even particularly with the election we've just seen, the loss of nine House seats for the GOP in 1970 wasn't that bad. But it was a defeat then because he had expected to win seats for the party, maybe even take back the House. His party did not control the House during his entire presidency, nor the Senate. So this was a defeat, and he summoned his key advisors down to a meeting in Key Biscayne, Florida. All the trusted folks, Ehrlichman, Haldeman, even a very young Donald Rumsfeld, a few others. It was a missed opportunity, he felt. They would go over why it happened, including what he, Richard Nixon, did wrong as well. And we know what they discussed in that secret meeting, because... One of the trusted people leaked it to Evans and Novak. We can't pretend to know everything Ulysses S. Grant did when his GOP party lost the House in 1874. And he would face a House that, among other enemies to his government, would feature the former vice president of the Confederacy in it. But we do know from what a few members of his cabinet said, Hamilton Fish, Secretary of State, and also his Postmaster General, that it appeared not to bug President Grant in the slightest. Woodrow Wilson knew that the midterm of 1918 was going to echo across the ocean and that it would interrupt his negotiations as they developed a treaty with Germany, the conclusion of World War I. The French Prime Minister and the British Prime Minister already felt he was interfering, bumbling over here in his boat. He tried to get a positive midterm result, and he wrote a letter to all the newspapers in the country asking, pleading for a Democratic Congress to show support in the president. That didn't work. And now, after a midterm in which his party lost both House and Senate, he penned a letter of thanks to one of the few people who had supported him during that time. Herbert Hoover. Now I know that I can trust your judgment. America found it too partisan during the middle of a war to ask for a Democratic Congress. But Hoover said it was right. That the effects of the president losing a midterm election would actually hurt the nation. And he had a right to ask for a mandate. Hoover didn't completely believe that Wilson's actions were right, but he felt that his show of support for the president at this time was the right thing to do. He got killed in the press for backing Woody. The Republican chair called it blasphemy. George W. Bush called his 2006 midterm a thumping. He and Vice President Dick Cheney donned blue ties and visited Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid. Since the election was mostly about the direction of the war in Iraq, he fired his Secretary of War, Donald Rumsfeld. In 2010, President Barack Obama called his midterm defeat for his party a shellacking. And it was. 
If we are to believe the accounts in Double Down, this is a book about the 2012 election authored by the same people who gave us game change about the 2008 election. President Obama's reaction was just mild. He blamed not the policy, but the messaging. Pfizer suggested, maybe warm up to business a bit. I'd already done that, he said. He blamed Rahm Emanuel, his chief of staff. He was already on the way out to become mayor of Chicago. I'll work 22 hours instead of 20. So pledged Richard Nixon at that Florida post-midterm meeting. Plus, the thinking group agreed some heads in the administration needed to roll. Congress needed to be lobbied better, a softer line with Democrats. And they needed to tone down Vice President Spiro Agnew. In Bill Clinton's case, many have speculated that his 1994 midterm might have been a blessing. The Democrats were gone as a force with the Republicans in control of the House and Senate. But he was having some issues with some Democrats anyway. He'd have to face Al D'Amato now in the Senate Finance Committee. But he already wasn't getting along with Democrat Pat Moynihan in the Senate Finance Committee. Dick Morris, pollster, was his secret consultant, someone who helped engineer his comeback in Arkansas, one that helped him deal with his reelection, coming up with new things for the president to say and focus on, and testing them in polls. Very small polls, small sample sizes. If there was a phone book of the entire United States of America, you could open up the phone book to any one page, call those people, and get the sense of what people were thinking. His staff, Clinton felt, wasn't giving him all the information they could. They had their own agenda. Clinton saw it as an opportunity. The Democrats will say, no tax cut. The Republicans will say, tax cuts for the wealthy. But I'll say, middle-class tax cut. Opportunity among the ruins. Something later known as triangulation. The 1918 midterm made Wilson's job harder. But Wilson carried on. A month after the crushing defeat in the elections, he defined what peace meant after World War I and dared the rest of the nations to accept. He issued 14 points, most importantly including a League of Nations to settle further international disputes. The U.S. would not join that League of Nations, but a league would form and would be the basis of international politics today. I have learned about myself and the presidency. From this experience, I conclude. Alone in the residence now, Richard Nixon's self-criticism continued on a legal pad, part of his presidential papers. The staff takes too much of my time. The press is hopelessly against me. Stop recreation, except for exercise. Need social events. Need for optimistic, upbeat psychology. For stimulating people to talk to. 
for dignity, kindness, drive, youth. He'd change the group of people that he was talking to. Among the individuals he became more interested in now, a Democrat, Senator Lloyd Benson of Texas, had just defeated his good friend, George H.W. Bush, for the U.S. Senate. He liked Bush, but he decided to have a good conversation with Benson. Got along with him fine. He brought in John Connolly, governor of Texas. Talked to him, another Democrat. He had further discussions with Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who developed welfare programs for the Nixon administration. These individuals would be helpful for his path to re-election. Connolly would end up leading Democrats for Nixon and then become Nixon's Treasury Secretary. There's a lot of defeats in American politics. Let's just say that. A British Prime Minister could sit there for five years in government while all sorts of things are going on with complete control of legislative and executive government. Yes, there are little scandals to develop. Yes, there are little issues. Yes, there are by-elections. They have bad times in the press, but they sit in government. Very similar in Canada. Government's in four or five years. They have enough of a majority. An American government is an amorphous thing. Every two years, it's tested. And every two years, its constitution can change. Four years after President Obama experienced a loss for his party in the House. Now another damaging midterm. This time, the Senate is lost. For the Democrats, and there'll be a GOP Senate led by Senator Mitch McConnell of Kentucky when the Senate starts its business in January. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In the past 10 years, each party has won three elections each. 2004, a Republican win. 2006, a Democrat win. 2008, a Democrat win. 2010, a Republican win. 2012, a Democrat win. 2014, a Republican win. Ten years. Parties keep trading. And 2014 certainly is a disaster for Democrats and for President Obama. Eight Senate seats lost definitely, and perhaps after the Louisiana runoff, nine. I mean, the two Republican candidates in Louisiana have joined forces together, unless something amazing happens, and it is Louisiana, and Landreau has been pretty strong, but it's not likely that she'll keep her seat. She only won the uh, initial election by a percentage of a point. Nine Senate seats. That means, and we talked about this in a previous midterm, we knew the president's party was going to lose seats. We said the average was six. This means that the Senate loss for the president's party in 2014 for the Democrats is definitely on the higher side of history. Average is six. So if they end up losing eight, they'll be tied with uh, Reagan in in 1986. And if you end up losing nine, it'll be one of the highest in the history, the highest uh, since 
Eisenhower's party lost 13 senators in 1958. But in 1958, the GOP didn't control the Senate. So, of course, that that loss of 13 senators is devastating, and it solidified the control of Democrats over the Senate, but under Majority Leader Lyndon Johnson, but control wasn't at stake. So that makes this election even worse. And so we get into a very interesting uh, set of politics, and we go back to starting to look at the two sides of Pennsylvania Avenue, executive and legislative branch battles, which have gone on because the House has been Republican, but you've been spared some of the really interesting ones because Democrats control the Senate and could protect the president from House legislation and also protect the president from battles over appointments. Let me point out something here, because so I'm saying, you know, Obama is the inheritor of this trend. I'm the history guy, right? One that did FDR, Woodrow Wilson, George W. Bush, Ronald Reagan. And I know it's tempting to say, oh, Bruce, so you're trying to sort of negate the result or take away from the result. No, I want to be completely objective about it. I want to state that, that there is this trend presence. You, you simply can't take it away that every six years, president gets kicked. No doubt. But sometimes, all the time, when we talk about patterns in history, you might be tempted to think that excuses the actors of today, right? That excuses presidents. Oh, they're going to lose seats anyway. Now, I think it's important to look at trends, but it's also important to look at things this way. The trend is there. Six-year presidents lose seats. So it's a bad hand. Did the Democrats, and here, President Obama in the White House, play the hand well? I don't think so. Good political actors take advantage of everything they can and try to do better than the trend. So, And, and you have a couple of examples in history. You have Clinton, 1998. That's the only six-year midterm election where there was a stay for the president's party. But you have a number of first-year trends, uh, first-year midterms. Jimmy Carter in 1978, not too bad. John F. Kennedy in 1962, not too bad for his party. FDR in 1934 is actually a wonderful midterm, first-term midterm. So there's a possibility of staving that trend off, at least in first terms, which is suggestive that certain actions, better policies, better messaging, better everything as a president could turn that trend around. Didn't happen here. This is not a hocus-pocus trend, by the way. This is a trend that's based on a couple of things that tend to happen. One, president loses influence. Two, turnout goes down. Three, senators elected on the coattail of presidents. Okay, in this case, you got Kay Hagan and Mark Udall elected in 2008 as new senators are now up six years later. And they're facing voters thinking they're incumbents when really they got elected on the president's coattail with some exceptional turnout that isn't present in their elections. Those are real forces, which suggest that this isn't some just, again, hocus-pocus trend, you know, uh, when the Redskins win, you know, the Democrats do too, or something like that, you know. There are real forces here, which suggest those real forces could be changed if you targeted them. So again, you got dealt a bad hand, but what did you do with it? George W. Bush, 2002. Midterms were very successful. That was his first term. So the midterm doesn't always go against the president. It's just a trend. You're really at this point 
looking at 2014, dealing with a president that through most of the presidency has had an approval rating of under 50%, despite a very high approval in his first year, going a little bit into the second, and a re-election. That suggests there's a loss of influence, the messaging isn't working, he's making statements, and the approval rating doesn't change after the statement. His own party senators were afraid to campaign with him. He's not, and, and that's really bad because as a president, what you really want to do is what someone like Reagan was able to do is actually make senators afraid on the other side of politics that you're going to go after their party senators. That, in other words, President Obama is going to be campaigning in your state if you vote this way. Obama has not had that through his entire presidency. Let's put the damage in perspective here. Both houses now in opposition can block any new initiative from the White House. In my view, initiatives, achievements, action on the part of the White House, a part of the party that's in the White House, are the oxygen. And that is going to be the report court on which 2016 is judged, no matter who the nominee in 2016 is, even if it's not someone that ever worked in the Obama White House. If they're a Democrat on the ballot, They're getting judged by what this president finishes second term. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Now you're cut off from making initiatives because the other party's in the White House, and that's what makes it very difficult. Because the Senate is lost... Your ability to make appointments as a president, including appointments to the Supreme Court, is also blocked. And when we get into foreign policy, you have a branch that has a little bit more credibility in challenging and questioning and investigating foreign policy in the Senate than in the House. When the House attempts to look at foreign policy and criticize it, it's not as credible. Now you're going to have Armed Service Chairman, I mean, John McCain, who's been critical of Obama, is going to lead that committee. That's just one of the many faces he'll be, uh, President Obama will be looking at across the street. In the near-term politics, the Senate was the target of this election. But if you are Democrats, you're worried about a little bit of what you don't need to be. At least it's not the most long-term problem you need to be worried about. If you're a Republican supporter, you're not excited enough about something else that happened that flew under the radar. A little bit of talk about it, not much. And it has nothing to do with Mitch McConnell and nothing to do with the Senate. 
The Senate in 2016 could go back. Winning five Senate seats, six Senate seats is not an impossible goal at all for a single election that's going to happen in two years. Quietly, Republicans picked up, looks like right now, 12 seats in the House. All right, so you've got a situation where we're at 244 Republicans in the House, 186 Democrats, and there's five seats that, at the time I'm recording this, are not being counted. A lot of them look like they'll go Democrats' way. There's a race in Arizona that's still being counted. Some of the votes being counted are from a Democratic county, so that that one everybody's in, up in the air about. In my opinion, the House has been fortified. It's going to be very hard to dislodge that if you're the White House. That's a larger long-term problem, even though the Senate is going to be the short-term headache. Here's why. Let's say you're a Democrat supporter of President Obama. You're going to say, Bruce, look, 2016, we're going to have top-tier candidate. And we have the turnout machine. Look at the turnout you got in this. This 34% of the American people cast a ballot for Senate and House in these midterms. We're going to get 55 for a very exciting presidential election. We're going to get the youth. We're going to get the uber majority of ethnic voters. We're going to get new voters excited about a candidate. We're going to bring that out again. You saw what happened in 2012. Everyone's going to be surprised. And we'll take the House and the Senate back. Here's the thing. I would agree. You might get the Senate back. That's actually a doable goal in an election, especially these are statewide contests. The states, we, there's a lot of talk about the map, and the map certainly didn't favor Democrats in this year, and it will favor Democrats in 2016. I mean, there's going to be senators in Pennsylvania and Illinois. They're going to be very vulnerable. We'll see. So if the argument is that the new presidential candidate will be that battering ram that on their coattails will break through and bring in a Democratic House... You've got a historical problem that you have to deal with. And that is that new presidents haven't been doing the battering ram as well as they used to. Carter, 1976, brings in one extra Democrat on his coattails. George H.W. Bush, Bush Sr., brings in two Republicans on his coattails. Clinton, which was a pretty big election, 1992, election of change, brings in just nine Democrats in the House on his coattails. Well, we got the Obama, we got the turnout machine. Yeah, President Obama in 2008 brings in 24. 24 seats would not be good enough to change the dynamics in the House. Yeah, if all the races go Uh, The uncounted races go for Democrats. You're going to have the House looking at 191 Democrat, 244 Republican. If you get what you got in 2008, it will be 220 Republican, 215 Democrat. Very close, but not good enough. You're going to need 27 seats in order to get the House back. It doesn't sound like a lot, but it's more than any presidential campaign has been able to deliver on its coattails, save one. In modern times. That's Ronald Reagan in 1980. He brought in 35. And if you're able to do that, you get the house back. 
That's the type of presidential election win in 1980 was an absolute defeat. That's what you're going to have to do to get that type of a landslide to bring in more than 27 on your coattails. So something that's flown under the radar, it actually wasn't a very huge defeat in the House election that corresponded with this midterm. I think the popular vote so far counted, the Cook political report, is 53% for Republicans and 45 46% for Democrats. It's actually a strong uh, other party vote in the House election, which is an interesting topic on its own, of about 2.5%. They'll get, of course, no representation in the House the way things work out. I think we'll do another cast on what happens from here and the different options of both sides of Pennsylvania Avenue, but just want to acknowledge that president, for a variety of reasons, a strategy, the message, a program, a, a signature achievement on health care that's kind of a be hard to explain, does some good things, does some, but also has a lot of moving parts, hard to explain. More important than that, I think, is that the midterm of 2014 was a referendum on the second term of President Obama. And it's very hard to point to. Where was the achievement? It almost thought like simple management was what they were going to bring to the table in 2014. There was no signature achievement in the second term the way there was in the first. And you are where we are. We'll talk more about how the different players will operate in this new atmosphere in another cast. So then I just wanted to sort of assess what I think a midterm defeat means. If you like the program, please tell someone about it. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Twitter is at M-Y-H-I-S-T. And thanks for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.